Hey folks, welcome to Pivot Point. My name is Joseph DiBiase and this is my podcast. Hey, hey, welcome back to Pivot Point. This is my show. My name is Joseph DiBiase and Today's guest will be Cindy Mallow. Cindy and I worked together on a couple of films. The Book of Eli was one and Broken City was the other. Now, before I tell you more about Cindy, I wanted to talk a little bit about hmm, the lack of equality in our business. Now, I promise you I'm not going to get on a rant But I am bringing it up for two reasons. One, Cindy and I discuss it on the podcast. And two, I want to shine a light on someone who is making a difference. And that person is Sarah Elizabeth Timmons and her production company, Life Out Loud Films. I know Sarah Elizabeth through my wife, Kristen, because Kristen has written some music for her and has worked with her as a composer, and Sarah Elizabeth was the producer. Now, I've heard how Kristen and Sarah Elizabeth would interact, and I hear what's important for them. And what I mean by that is, of course, there is importance to the excellence in the filmmaking that they're doing. What I'm talking about is the conversations that I hear between them of what used to be something that we could never talk about, at least not in the open, and that is about inequality. And I'm well aware that there's ageism, and I'm well aware that we have racism, and none of those are acceptable, and neither is sexism. And today, I wanted to shine a light on somebody who is out there making a difference. Now, please know, this isn't a paid sponsorship. This is me simply shining a light on Sarah Elizabeth and her team at Life Out Loud Films. And one of the things that I really like about what they're doing is that they're dedicated to seeing the possibility within female creatives and giving women opportunities. I love that. On her website, you're going to find that she has a course that's going to be launching in September, and it is of value to anybody, especially in the indie film market. And that website is www.lifeoutloudfilms.com forward slash join us. That's www lifeoutloudfilms.com forward slash join us. As I mentioned, the course starts in September. That's why this is the join us page, because then you can get the alerts and find out what this course is about and how it can help you. And again, this is not a paid sponsorship. This is something that I want to do because they are making a difference. They being Sarah Elizabeth and her team. So, www.lifeoutloudfilms.com forward slash join us. Check them out. I'm confident you're going to like what you see. As I mentioned, my guest today is Cindy Mallow. Now, did you know that Cindy has five Primetime Emmy Award nominations? 
Now, I'm not going to list them all here, but I will tell you, one is for Deadwood the movie, another one is for Mad Men, and two for Ozark, one this year and one last year. And also for Ozark, she was nominated for an Eddie, an ACE award. And then I want to tell you that she was nominated for an HPA award, you know, Hollywood Post Alliance, for her work on House of Cards. Yeah, that's this Cindy Mallow on my show. Now, knowing Cindy the way I do, she'd be like, all right, stop already. Am I right, Cindy? And see, I didn't even use a Boston accent or, well, she's from Rhode Island, a Rhode Island accent. When Cindy and I first worked together, it was on the Book of Eli. I mentioned that already. But what I noticed right away was Cindy's leadership skills. Now, when I came on to Book of Eli, there were some changes in personnel and I was taking over the music editorial department, and never once did I get the sense that it was an out-of-control movie, or that nobody knew what was going on. Cindy is a great communicator and a great collaborator. And of course, above all that, she's an amazing picture editor. She knows how to cut story. She knows where the emotionality is. She has great timing. And when you watch what she's edited, you're compelled to keep on watching. And that's the experience that I've had with Cindy on both projects that we worked on together. And I'm pretty sure that anybody else who has worked with her would say the exact same thing. So, here you go. Cindy Mollo and I talking it up on Pivot Point. By the way, do you notice uh, the I, Book of Eli poster in the back? I band? do. I like it. I I can. Yeah. I barely can move this, but I have. Uh, well. I see alphas. Yeah, this alpha, I think, here, hold on, is this going to reach? I can show you this. It's on this wall. I have that. Nice, that nice. Yeah. Yep, very nice. Yeah. It, um, I, have certain, I have certain posters up on the wall here. That's kind of my yes wall, like oh. great memories, good good things that have happened yeah this wall here is my wall of remembrance which is a picture that my mom painted that has a big tear in it oh and a fire helmet that i had when i was i don't know how old that i had destroyed when i was a kid because a neighbor yelled at me and so i bought a replacement and that that's to remind me not to not to self-destruct or to hurt the things that I love. Wow. So, and then I have pictures of like people who have passed, like my dad and my grandmother and my uncle and that kind of yep. stuff. Yep. So it's just a wall of remembrance yeah. and that kind of thing. So, Very yeah, nice. you know, you just kind of, you just build your, your little yeah. nest, you know? Well, and same thing, like I have... Um, the only posters I have up are from projects that had special meaning to me, like when I did Boycott with Clark Johnson and met people I've been friends with forever and Book of Eli. Yeah. And, and another little film that oddly I ended up getting fired from, but the director's cut, we, because the whole film got taken over by the producers, it was 
it was a terrible experience for mm. a little while, but it was an indie film. So the director's cut was six weeks long. It was like the best six weeks of my life. Uh, it felt like uh, of, of my career, my God, not my life, but um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it was, um, it was like being in film school. Uh, mm. Henry Bromel who's passed away, unfortunately, but he was the director, the writer. And, Every day was like being in film school with Robert Altman, oh. Francois Truffaut, uh, Steven Spielberg. Like we just had the best conversations and we really reworked the film together. It was, it was wonderful. That's so, awesome. Good memories on the wall behind Yeah, me. yeah. And I think we need those, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, just, it's always nice to walk in and it's like, oh, yeah, big moments. Like I have What's Eating Gilbert Grape up there and. Nice. And shining through. Uh, yeah. And of course, I've got, you know, American Sniper. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, it's fun. Yeah. It's fun stuff. So, how the heck are you, man, woman? I was going to say, how are you doing, man? I'm like, that's not going to work. <laughs> Let me no, try that you know, again. gender nonspecific is fine right now, especially the way I've been dressing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my oh, God, Cindy. <laughs> Well, before my shower today, I had a baseball hat on, uh, yoga pants, you know. Yeah, but, um, yeah. Uh, I have to say, in some ways, being an editor, and maybe it's the same for a music editor, composer like yourself, I can tolerate this time maybe better than some people. Mm-hmm. I, I like sitting down in front of my computer and looking at footage and kind of forgetting what time of day it is and mm-hmm. just losing myself in my work. I, I do like that. Mm-hmm. I also have a situation where I, I, I live in a condominium. So even though I live alone, I do have people around. Yeah. And we'll congregate on my roof deck, which I don't know if you remember, you were here once for a party, but I think you were mostly inside. I have this big roof deck. Yeah, I do remember. With a big table. Yeah. And five or six of us can sit six feet apart on my roof deck. Oh, and nice. so we have these little social distancing social hours. Yeah. And just shoot the breeze. It's been nice. Like little things like that have kept me sane. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right? We do that. I have a table. It's just a car table. But a friend of mine, we just got together. I opened up a bottle of wine. I each poured, you know, poured uh, some into a carafe for myself, carafe yeah. for him chairs on either side of the table uh, you know and i made sure it was like you know away from the table and we just sat and drank wine and caught up and that was cool it was good to do it's really important i mean if you're being safe and you know not spitting on each other to be ridiculous um (laughs) you know why not we need we need contact we're you know we're not meant to be cloistered no absolutely so tell me, I, I'd like to kind of get a good history and some highlights of your life, but I, I, you grew up in Rhode Island, is that right? I did. I grew up in Warwick, Rhode Island, and I, I like to say that when I started to realize what I wanted to do for a living, I found myself saying, how am I going to get from Warwick, Rhode Island to Hollywood? Yeah, yeah. How is that ever going to work? Uh, my father worked for the post office for 33 years. My mother was the secretary in our in our church until I was in, I think, junior high school. And then she started working for a bank. Uh-huh. So when I really started thinking about things like, well, I didn't even know film school existed. Mm. I mean, that was just something I learned about much, much, much later. 
But when I started thinking about, oh, I want to tell stories. I want to tell stories on TV or movies. How do I do that? You know, it yeah. was, it's mind boggling to me now to think of that, you know, 12 year old girl thinking she wanted to do this and she had no clue how it would work. And yet here I am. Yeah. Like, that's wonderful. Yeah, it blows my mind. Yeah. Sort of, sort of sort of cutting to the I guess I guess spoiler alert, that little yeah. girl made it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she now, got there. <laughs> now, do you have siblings? So I'm the oldest of four okay. and we're kind of, you know, the term Irish twins. Uh-huh. And we're only quarter Irish. So I'm the oldest. My brother is about 19 or 20 months younger. And then there's a sister right after that and another sister. Uh And they are all married with two kids each. And I'm the only one who went into a creative field. Although my youngest sister is an elementary school teacher, which Mm -hmm. I think of as being really creative. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And so at 12, you knew you wanted to go into the film business. And yet I know you sang, you were a singer for some time, right? When I was in college, I sang in a band. And, and, you know, when I describe it now, I say I had a lot more nerve than talent. It was the, the new wave era of music. And so there were some bands led by women like Chrissy Hind of the of Pretenders was like my, just my idol. Mm. And um, yeah, I, I had more nerve than talent. And I didn't know anything about music. I had nerve. Well, you um, have a great voice. I know when I first met you, it, you know, because my ears are I'm like, oh, is that person a singer? Oh. Yeah. So I don't Thanks. say so much about maybe not so having the talent. I, it was like, because you, you have a very open voice. And I have at times, thank you. Uh, I have at times taken voice lessons and it's kind of fun feeling that sound reverberate in your in your mask as yeah. my voice yes. teacher would say but he, it's funny because we were marking a song one day that I wanted to sing and I, I it was an old like Bessie Smith tune or wow, something nice. yeah just yeah. to try to belt out a blues tune and he said <laughs> I was a little off key that day I guess and he said you know how sometimes your voice sounds a little unpleasant and I went <laughs> no I didn't know that <laughs> He's like, sorry, it's just that today you're a little off. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Unpleasant. Okay. Okay. Oh gosh. You know, that reminds me like when I first started working and I'm in a recording session and, you know, musicians don't always hit the right pitch right. and learning how to use the talk back to musicians was a whole nother art mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you don't want to say you were you know, geez, you were really flat. Right. You want right. to, you know, because then they're, especially if it's like a string section, they all kind of look at each other and go, well, was it you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're never thinking, well, I guess that could have been me. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so the, the word choice has, has uh, developed into, yep. hey, everything is sounding really great. Can we go back to bar 25? It sounds a little pitchy there. Let's, let's, let's yeah. listen to that again. <laughs> Well, and what's interesting about my time in the band, uh, which, you know, I loved and I was so grateful. And and I realized as I became an adult that when you've done performing at any level, Mm. you know, and this was, uh, you know, we played a couple of bars in Boston and a lot of frat parties, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. You realize as an adult, if you have some interest, some, some genetic need to perform, how do you do that as you get older if you're not a performer? Yeah. You know, so 
I would take these voice lessons and this guy was just a hoot and he, he read me like a book. And so I would be trying a new song and he'd say, okay, stand by the piano. We're going to mark the, mark this tune and you are wearing an elegant gown Nice. Uh huh. <laughs> and you're in a small room, lots of people at small tables, but you want to, you want to project to that guy in the back of the room, you know, and it was just a fun little fantasy hour of, you know, singing yeah. while someone played the piano for me. It was that, really fun. That's really great. He gave you some circumstances to play in. Yeah. And and the thing, what, what, the reason I, I kind of brought that up is even in college and then in recent years when I was taking these lessons, I learned that I am often ahead of the beat. Oh, isn't And I don't know if it's that I'm nervous or that I don't have the confidence to like kind of, kind of the same, two sides of the same coin, but is it that I'm nervous and and I'm not trusting that I'll know like when to sing, so mm. I'm just rushing through it. And I find in my work, sometimes I have to tell myself, oh, slow down here. Let's make sure everyone understands like what that person's feeling. Or when I'm editing music, oftentimes I'll say, that sounds right, but then I'll go, I'm usually fast. Let me open up that the yeah. B side of that. Ed- yep, I'm I'm two frames too fast. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like I've just learned that I tend to jump on things. Oh, that's a really good sensitivity to have learned about yeah. yourself. You know, when I've, I've worked with you in a couple of projects, and not a lot of editors have this, but you have this, and you have a wonderful sense of timing mm. in, in the musical way that when I'm putting music up to scenes, things are just naturally fitting. Right, Which I right. think it has a lot to do with that musicality experiences yeah. you have. You know, it's interesting because I sort of learned that I had that in kind of a backwards way because I would be putting cues against my own editing and I go, wow, I don't really need to edit that. That kind of, oh, and look, this cue works also. Oh, yeah. and this cue works. Oh, maybe I have to tighten up a little there. But I, so I, I didn't do a lot of editing in my temp scores in the beginning because I there was a certain like, cadence that mm-hmm. was musical mm-hmm. um or you know and and things were sort of fitting mm-hmm. um it's nice so <laughs> so okay so we're at warwick rhode island you what, what where did you go to college so i went to boston college okay and um went to boston. originally I, I wanted to go to emerson college uh-huh yeah. which is more of an art school yeah. but they at the time were having financial issues they might been on the verge of bankruptcy, I'm not sure. And Boston College offered me some scholarship money as as a freshman. I went there and didn't feel at home immediately, but ended up meeting people I've been friends with ever since. Mm. So I found my people and I found the communications department and the film department and I took as many classes as I could that were the hands-on production classes. And I even, um, I had an internship in college at the, uh, don't laugh, the Boston Catholic Television Center. <laughs> and oh, sorry, what was interesting about... Sorry, I'm sorry, I'm laughing. You said don't <laughs> laugh and I'm laughing. <laughs> it, was, um, it was interesting because uh, they did religious programming, but they also had a studio side that they were allowed to rent out. And I never understood... I think that side supported itself and kept the money separate from the church side Mm because there were tax issues that needed to be separate. But um, I had an internship with them and they hired me right out of college. And so I had a job hands-on 
in my field, which, mm. you know, a lot of people didn't who, who wanted to do what I did. And a short time after I graduated and had that job, the young man who was doing all their editing, he just disappeared one day. I don't know if he got fired or if he stopped showing up. Uh, but they said, do you want to sit in and do some editing today? And I was like, yeah. You know, oh, I had played with the, set, the system. It was a little three-quarter inch editing system with a joystick. Oh my gosh. And yeah. I, I remember those. Played with it as an intern. Yeah. And I thought I knew all I knew needed yeah. to know to edit. Yeah. And literally, or I think they said it like maybe on a Monday and then the next day I was going to be doing some editing. So instead of wearing the farmer jeans that I had been wearing to work, <laughs> I dressed nicely. And I sat next to this lovely woman from WGBH. Yes. Uh, and we pulled clips for a press reel to build a reel of clips for press purposes for Masterpiece Theater. Oh, nice. And, you know, so I'm as far away from Masterpiece Theater as you can be, but I'm, I'm working with this woman who's giving me time code numbers and I'm pulling clips, very simple editing, but I was like, oh, I'm an editor. Oh, oh my that's God. awesome. How long did you do that for? I was at that company for two years. And then I got a job in Connecticut. It was sort of an odd detour. I went to a news station. Oh, wow. Yeah, where I was like in the studio operating cameras and teleprompters and things like that. What? It was a 24-hour news channel. And it was competing at the time with um, CNN. Mm. This was Westinghouse and ABC. And so Ted Turner was suing them. And they had more to lose because Westinghouse had radio stations and TV stations around the country. So... They settled the suit and closed the station. Oh, too bad. So I went back to Boston, back to editing. But a couple of years after that, I ended up moving to New York. And I did commercials there. And I, I mean, I was an online editor. I was on the technical side. Oh, nice. And I didn't yeah. love it. Yeah. But I just felt it was, I could leapfrog. It was going to take me somewhere. Yeah, and, yeah. And then I was um, at the company that did the finishing for the Cosby show. And I sat with the editor and watched what he did. So that was multi-camera sitcom. Mm -hmm. And the Avid came along and I learned the Avid. And then one day they said, we're, gonna, we're bidding on this television show. Would you like to show the editors how to use the Avid? And I said, sure, that'd be fun. And that show was Homicide, Life on the Street. Yeah. And they had two editors, and I had shown them each how to use the Avid, and one of them didn't really take to it very well. He was a film guy, old film guy. And um, they had to let him go, and they said, would you want to fill in for a couple of weeks while we look for someone else? And I always joke and say, if I ever have the opportunity to write an autobiography, in this, you know, this is the chapter where the whole game changes because yeah. I said, oh, my God, I will do such a good job for you. You won't need anyone else. Oh, good for you. That and, is and they, wonderful. But, but what's funny is they were under such pressure that I think they were just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, <laughs> <laughs> just go just go sit in that dark room and keep pushing buttons because yeah. we need to keep things moving. And I worked on the show for five seasons. Oh, that's you know, wonderful. I took a leave of absence from, I was at Editel, New York, and I took a leave of absence for the first season. And I think maybe even the second season, I was still on staff at, Edible, at Editel, but took the leave of absence. And then I just decided to go freelance because it seemed like I could do a pilot in between seasons of Homicide. Yeah. I knew Homicide would end someday, but I just trusted that. And, you know, there weren't a lot of TV shows 
that edited in New York, which yeah. is why it was a bit of a leap. And I wasn't really in the film community there because I had been an online editor. Mm. So it, it was a leap, but I trusted, and, and boy, I'm not always like this, I just trusted that the Avid was doing something to the business that even though I hadn't come from the film community, TV shows weren't being cut on film anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and slowly they weren't even matching back to negative and, and um, putting a, neg- a cut negative in the vault. Yeah. You know, in the beginning, you still had to make yeah. a negative cut list. And I didn't know with confidence that films would go the same way. But my first HBO film, I was like, well, this is just a big TV show mm. where we have to have a screening, you yeah. know, a, yeah. a focus group. Yeah. And my first feature, I was like, well, this is just an even bigger TV show, but we're doing two preview screenings. Yeah, yeah. And I have to understand that world. And it's a bigger mix and it's bigger, bigger everything. But things started to be done the same way. That's wonderful. What a, I love the fact that you spoke up for yourself. You know, because I don't always do that even now. Uh, But I think it was such a clear opportunity. And it was, I think there was almost a desperation in me that said, I want this to to change yeah. my course. I want this to be an opportunity. Mm. I know right now it's convenient for them. I'm helping them, yeah. but I want them to know that I want this. Yeah. And I think someone told me years later that for them, they liked me. They wanted to give me the opportunity, and it was a no-risk way of doing it because they really did need time mm. to find someone. And if I worked out, it would be win-win. And yeah. if I didn't, there was already the story of you're just filling in while we look for someone. Right, right, and so right. we could all save face. Yeah. But, yeah, that was – and when I tell that story now to – young people who are trying to get, let's say, from reality to scripted, or they're just trying to get in the business, and they say, how did you get your start? I said, it's not going to happen this way again. I mean, unless there's some new change in technology that I don't foresee right now, I got in because I knew the equipment. Yeah. And it was a show that had an unusual camera and editing style, and they felt that someone who had done commercials might might get it, Mm -hmm. um, which I did. Where did you learn storytelling? Because your emotional awareness is spot on. You have a very high level of emotional awareness. And you, when you edit, you're telling really good stories. So where did you learn how to do that? You know, thank you. I think that when I was in co- so when I was in high school, I knew I wanted to tell stories. That's what I loved about movies. I loved you know, uh, the earliest movies I remember seeing, it's so banal, but they were the Disney movies mm-hmm. with Kurt Russell and Jan Michael Vincent, you know, oh, yeah. world's greatest athlete and the computer wore tennis shoes and <laughs> Mary Poppins. And I loved the fact that you would be in this dark room and you could live someone else's life you yeah. know, for the 90 minutes that you were there. Or um, I remember in junior high school being blown away by uh, Nicholas and Alexander about the the czars, the family that, uh, you know, that period in Russian history, the the end of the czars. And that was history and, and sort of the romance of film. And I loved this. I didn't know what stories I would tell per se, but I think I started learning that there was 
a world where people help someone tell their story, mm. whether it be in a documentary or a director who needed an editor or a writer. You mm. know, there were jobs. Not that I was thinking about jobs at a young age, but that, that there were there were functions that people performed to help tell stories. Mm. And when I was in high school, I started thinking about being a journalist and that I would be writing stories about other people. You know, not to sound too shallow, but I think as I realized that journalists are always sticking their microphone in someone's face and demanding to be told, you know, it, that questions be answered. I'm like, oh, I don't want people to not like me. I uh-huh. can't do yeah. that. Yeah, no, that's valid. Right? Sure. And then I started thinking, well, maybe I will um, be a director of the news, you know, and I'll be in the booth with the, the yeah. tape camera one and tape yeah. camera two. And, oh, we got to move that story up to the B section because it's breaking news. And yeah. Somehow, this was still in high school, maybe college, somehow a bug got in my ear that women weren't directors. Mm. And it, it's really funny because I was a little feminist, a mm-hmm. little women's liber, uh, but that wasn't something I could have known. Mm. It's, it's something someone said to me or that I picked up subtly that women were not directors. Mm. I had heard of Lena Wertmuller. I knew she was a director. Maybe there were others that I knew of at a young age, but I got that message. And so I thought, okay, well, then I won't do that. And in college, I had a broadcast writing class, and I will get back to the storytelling. Mm -hmm. Um, And and the, the woman who was teaching the class was a producer from a local news station. And as she talked about how to tell stories and how to write for television, she happened to say, you know, one of the jobs where you get to see what everyone else does is the edit is as the editor. You can judge the acting, the directing. She didn't say judge in a in like a superiority way. Sure. She just did, but you can learn about what makes good acting, what makes good directing. And that planted the seed for for editing in the back of my brain. And she also said and sometimes as the editor you have to write a little voiceover or you might need to write a little dialogue for someone in the background of the scene. You you know, you're not competing with or taking away from the writer, but you need that skill. And so I thought, well that was interesting. With the storytelling, I had always been interested in creative writing, and mm. so I had taken a lot of writing classes in high school and college. And I wrote for the school paper in college. And when I got out of college and I was living in New York, I took improv, mm. which I thought was a really good way to kind of, you know, bite writer's block. And um, I find I tap, I tap into those instincts a lot now. Yeah. And it shows, you know, you have this level of um, our humanity that is maintained on screen. And I know that's because of of the story that you're cultivating and, and crafting. Well, and don't you think too, Joseph, that um, if you live your life and you try to be somewhat self-aware and other uh, and understand what makes you tick and what makes other people in your life tick, it just helps you to become a better storyteller. I mean, yeah. I, I certainly did not have a rough life growing up, a very typical middle-class upbringing, but you know, you have your sorrows and your disappointments and you try to learn from them. And then you look at a character on screen. I had a moment the other day with someone, a character finds something on someone's phone that is very upsetting to this character. And Mm -hmm. we're kind of blowing through the moment. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. 
you have to think about what this moment means. It was a woman looking mm. at her husband's phone. I said, she just found this item on her husband's phone in the album called Hidden. Mm. It's something someone sent him. He didn't put it in the trash. He saved it, and he even hid it. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Even hid it, which shows that it means something to him. So she isn't just upset at the discovery. She's upset to learn that he cherished this photo. Like, it is... This is going to hit her in waves. We've got to either stay on that shot longer or cut back to it. Yeah. Because it isn't just the shock of seeing this photo. It's the realization of what him keeping the photo means. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, have I discovered a phone on a love, you know, a photo on someone's phone? No, not per se, but I have, you know. I have been betrayed. Yeah. And when you know that emotion, you know that you can't just skip over it. No. And I, I would have to agree 100% about our self-awareness. I think it does make us better storytellers. Yep. It makes what we put out in the world have a, a, a better or not better, a deeper Maybe level a deeper, of truth. Yeah. Or, you know, there's that truth to what it is that we're saying. And I think that's what makes things universal that yep. people can relate to. I want to go back just for a second about what you said, how somehow you picked up that women aren't able to direct or are not directors. It's just because over the years, I've really have had a deeper sensitivity to what's been going on in our world. I think I've had a lot of unconscious bias and uh, unaware of things. Mm-hmm. And like we're talking, and the more you become aware and the more you hear of these stories and the decisions that people have made or what was put on women uh, in this case uh, is, is just devastating to hear. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought it up because the whole idea here is to hear of how some people have had these experiences and and how they've worked through them and where they've gone with it, you know? Well, the interesting thing about that story is that I don't remember who said it. I don't remember what the context was. I know I was in high school, so it it was the 70s. And I very quickly moved on. Whereas, like, I can tell you that story about, you know, saying um, for a homicide, I'll do such a good job for you. Like, I remember that moment vividly. I don't remember literally who told me women weren't director. Like, it, it, didn't, it didn't sting like a slap, but it did make an impression. Yeah. And I, I, I think I was probably leaning away from wanting to direct because... I just did, same as like the journalist, I was worried that I would be hated and I'd have to be pushing my way in people's faces. As the director of the news, I thought, well, do I really want to be like the dictator, the one voice that everyone follows? I mean, now I look back and I think I could have done it. Sure. But from that young age, I was deterred and found this other path. And, yeah. and the truth is, as an editor, depending on the environment, on the sh- like the show that you're on, you have enormous power, sure. um, enormous influence. Yeah. Power, power is too political yeah, a word, but you relative. have enormous influence. Yeah. And so I get, you know, that satisfies 
certain parts of my ego that want to feel that I'm integral to the process. Yeah. In the indication of the success that you have in your life, had you decided to go towards directing, I would venture to say you would have become a very good director, a great director, because of who you are. You you are a hard worker, you're you know, you're diligent and you're personable and you know, you, you also want to tell a story and you work hard at doing that. And and you know the other thing, Joseph, and because we have worked together, I think you would know this. I like to build consensus. Yeah. Like which I think is maybe you know, maybe I would have been a good director, maybe not. Because one thing, like when you and I have worked together and we're trying to find a cue for a situation where, where you know, I think of uh, on Broken City and we mm. were trying to find a replacement for Marvin Gaye, mm-hmm. you know, for financial reasons. Right, yeah. It, it was a tough task because you're trying to do better than Marvin Gaye. How right. are you going to do that? You gonna, you know? Exactly, yeah. And I really valued your opinion because there were times where you were saying like, you know, you would, you would tell me that this one was good for this reason and that one was good for that reason. And, and you know, I, I didn't always hear it, but I valued your opinion. So mm. I'd be like, good, okay, let's oh, put that you. in the list. And, and we knew we were, the person we were working for wanted Marvin Gaye. You right, know, we were right. sort of on a fool's errand. Yeah. But, you know, we just wanted to do the due diligence. Yes. Suppose there was an affordable song that would work just as well, right. you know. Yeah. And so that's just being part of a team. Yeah. And as I said, I really value, I always value my music editor's opinion, but I really value yours because you have a good sense of narrative. So mm. you're not just looking to do something cool and flashy that might ultimately be distracting, you want to support the story. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. And I do try to do that. That's my story is, is everything. I mean, I mean, and, what are we doing if we're you, not doing story? You know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I was thinking about this in, in advance of this conversation that over the years, I have worked with some amazing people who have said things to me that have stuck in my brain and they're part of my my kit mm-hmm. as yeah. I think of it. Stephen Gyllenhaal, who father of Jake and Maggie, I worked with him in one of my early shows, episodes of Homicide, and he said to me, we're always going for performance. We're always going for the best performance possible. It's like, right, right, okay. So sometimes you can hide a continuity error or the dialogue is not quite right, mm-hmm. but the performance kind of gets you here and that's what's important. And then I've worked with directors who had a background as cinematographers and mm-hmm. now they were directing and they wanted the perfect camera move. Mm-hmm. And I would have to say to them, that's okay. We can compromise performance for camera move a couple of times. The problem is I can't tell you how many times we can do it to where we are now affecting overall performance mm. or story mm. or emotion or mm. what, like, and the same with pace of editing. And, and you've, you've worked on some action films. So, you know, there are times where things just have to go fast. Yeah. Right. But if you're also trying to tell a story or if there's some emotional component to that action scene, you know, mother's baby has been kidnapped and they're chasing after the baby. You need to see the mother's face. You need to have time to feel what she's going through in the middle of this crazy action sequence. So yes, pace is really important, but you can't sacrifice the story even in that moment. And, And all these different people I worked with through the years who say these things that I just 
take with me, you mm, know, and mm-hmm. um, so I'm always, and, and <laughs> Jason Bateman, who I work with on Ozark said to me once, cause I was talking about something and how, you know, I, I, I ran into him and I was in the process of working on something that I was helping them to recut. And I said to him, I'm just trying to get a little more emotion in, you know, wherever I can just amp up the emotion. And he said, boy, I, I love the way you talk about editing. And Jason is someone who knows every aspect of storytelling, super talented. Um, But I walked away and I thought, but it has to be about emotion. I mean, you have to understand how this lens maybe makes something more emotional or this lighting makes something more emotional. But by the time it gets to me, those decisions have been made. And I need to pick the thing that's the most emotional and look for ways to make something more emotional. And then the story that you're telling can really hit someone and really affect them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How exciting is that? I mean, that's a wonderful way to spend your day. Oh, my God. You know. You know, I I love it. Yeah. I I do have moments. Look, we all work too hard sometimes. (laughs) I know know where you're going. (laughs) Right? Uh, Work-life balance. Yes. But... I I have a I have so many times even within a work week where I just think how lucky I am. Yeah. You know, how lo- how lucky you are to do what you do. Um mm-hmm. we get to tell stories, we get to work with some of the best most talented people, you know, again, that little girl in Warwick, Rhode Island, you know, had no idea where she would end up and who she would end up working with and it's, yep. it's yep. amazing. Yeah. What hurdles have you had that you personally had to work through? You know, it's interesting. In this conversation, I've been much more candid about my background than I usually am. I don't usually talk about being an online editor Mm. in the beginning of my career. I'm not ashamed of it. I learned so much. And in fact, when the Avid started... And people, you know, you had your source material on three quarter inch tape and you had to look at color bars. People were like, what am I looking at? I'm like, well, I know what color bars are. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) And tone and, you know. um, So I think in the beginning and and this I do remember who said this to me, um, a guy I was working for at Editel who liked me and was almost like a, a surrogate father to me. He said, you know, you're you're not going to get the jobs on the the episodic shows because you didn't come out of film. Mm. And in 1988, 89, you know, he had a point. It was not precedented, but again, there was the avid. And I was, I knew, I knew two of the guys who were like in the first 10 employees at avid. They Mm. sent me a VHS tape one day that I remember popping in a deck and looking at this thing called the Avid, and I bought a Mac Plus within a week because I said, this is it. I had been working on the montage, and I had been learning all these other different nonlinear editing systems, if you remember that term. I do, I do. And and I said, oh, no, no, this is it. This And I, again, I'm not prescient. I'm, you know, don't make money in the stock market. But um, I said, that looks so easy to use, and it's like a word processor for pictures clicking and dragging and moving. And I said, that's going to become the Kleenex of editing systems. Mm. And I had been looking at editing systems for my company 
every, you know, I had to go to NAB a couple of times. What's out there, Cindy? What should we buy? And I, I after learning a lot of the different systems, when Avid came along, I was like, oh, no, this is This, this is, is it. it. Yeah. Oh, so uh, the, the first hurdle was competing with people who came up as like film assistants and now we're film editors and I was trying to get TV jobs and I was a little insecure about my background. Mm. But every episode of television that I did, I just learned and learned and learned and was a sponge. Mm. And um, I also, I think I avoided some hurdles by learning really early on that if you can, if you have the choice, you should always follow the best writing possible. And my first job on Homicide was for Tom Fontana. Mm. He was a, an amazing writer. He and Barry Levinson were co-producing the show. I mean, you couldn't have written a better, you know, in that uh, fictional autobiography that I'm writing, that, that chapter of, you know, uh, my first job being with Tom Fontana and Barry Levinson. That was, yeah. you couldn't write a better story. Right. Yeah. 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 And what a way to learn too. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, and every show that I did for them was different. I did Homicide. Then I did Oz. In Oz, we had to do, um, you know, this is a show about prison and what Tom loved about the show and, and as a writer is that he didn't have to do a four act structure. There were no commercials. So if he wanted to tell your story for 45 minutes and my story for five minutes, he could do that. Mm -hmm. You know, he could break up the hour however he wanted, depending on what, uh, where the stories were taking him. And that was kind of fun. And we had these devices whenever a new prisoner came into um, the story there was this character in a plexiglass box that was meant to represent a cell. And he talked directly to the camera and introduced the prisoner with their prison number, mm -hmm. which was always the year you were incarcerated. And I think you're the first initial of your last name and then a bunch of other numbers. And then he would, so he would say the prisoner number and then tell you the, the character's name and their story. And so we would have these flashbacks and we always had to come up with a different visual style for the flashbacks. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that I was the most talented at that, but I had a lot of tricks in my bag from being a video editor right. to, to play with. So certain things became advantages that I thought were initially disadvantages. So you went to New York and you, you had these opportunities. When did you decide to come to L.A.? So, uh, you know, can I say one more thing of about course. hurdles before I answer that question? Yeah, yeah. Because I do think I've realized in retrospect only that there were times that I didn't get jobs because I was a woman. Mm. At the time that I didn't get these jobs, I thought I wasn't getting the job because maybe the other person had more experience than mm, me. Mm -hmm. And as I've looked back, we had different experiences, but they were equivalent. So I can't, I, you can never say 100% with 100% surety unless someone says to you, I'm not hiring you because you're a woman. Yeah. But I think when I look back, there were some situations that I did, uh, where I was not hired. How do I want to put this? Um, well, the technology was so new. And even though I was at the forefront of it at that time, mm -hmm. I wasn't always embraced as the right person for the job. 
Mm. And I, and, and maybe it's because I hid this technical background that I had, mm. you know, because mm. of my, uh, uh, my insecurity against people who had film degrees, mm-hmm. film school degrees. But, um, so maybe it was my own insecurity, but there were times I would learn later one or two times that, yeah, you know, they just weren't comfortable with a woman in, on that show. You mm-hmm. know, they wanted a guy mm-hmm. and, and I heard it explicitly many years later. So I didn't know it in the moment. Mm. It didn't deter me in the moment in, in those years, but I learned it later and I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I, and How'd that was a hurdle about, I didn't yeah. even know was there. Yeah. When you learned that, what did that, that biased feel like? I was lucky that it was so far in the rearview mirror that I just kind of went, huh, okay. Yeah. Um, it did make, make me look around at where I was in, in the moment mm-hmm. and go, huh, I wonder how much of that is still happening. Yeah. Um, anyway. Well, I, I think it's a valid point because, you know, Kristen and I talk about this often. Mm-hmm. Um, that, like, on the composing side, we're hearing more and more that they want to have more women being offered up as composers. Right. It, 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 there's a double, double edge to this, where, in some ways, great, you've got some sort of awareness. Right. Yet, on the other side, it feels a bit on the negative because you're trying to fill a quota. Yep, and that just to me feels again. I get, I get conflicted about it because yeah. I, I what I how I talk about it is like we are in the midst of change, and in change it's messy, mm-hmm. and in order to sustain change, we've got to embrace this messiness, right? Or else, three four years from now, they're not going to think, oh, I've got to have a woman. Or right. a person right. of color, or you know, a diversity of gender. Right. It, you know, there is something about it that uh, seems not quite balanced. Mm-hmm. And there's so many people that don't understand parity, because mm-hmm. um, even you know, well, you've got a woman editor and a and a male editor. Is the woman editor getting paid the same? If their credits are the same, because I know things are based on credit, and I get right. that. But you know, if everything is given equal, mm-hmm. is are they getting paid the same? Yeah. You know, um, so this is worth talking about and shining a light on because right. there are many people who will be listening that this affects their life. Right. And my hope is that they'll find encouragement because of people like you who have lived through some of these situations. One of the things that I think is tricky for women editors, and and I think it's a fantastic career for women. I know on some levels it's hard, the hours are crazy and you want to have a family, you want to have kids. So I don't, I don't ignore that that's a challenge. But one thing is you need to see other women in the position. Yeah. And we, we did a, 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 a campaign during Women's History Month through the uh, Editors Guild. The, cap of the, um, the slogan was, now that you can see us, you can be us. Yeah. 
and we put up pictures of ourselves with our assistants and our, you know, our crews on different shows because I think the women are only like 26% of the editors guild. Mm. And so right there, there's kind of a hurdle because people don't think that women are editors or don't realize that yeah. women are editors yeah. and women are editors. They're not just assistant editors. Right. They're, you know, the primary picture editor right. on big yep. projects. It's like, did they so, forget Dee right? Allen? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, but you know, she was one at a time and um, then there was Ann Coates yeah. and, you know, years yeah. later, Sally Menke, and um, you know, there there are there are always some names that you know, but um, the idea is to make editing a more visible career for women, so more women will want to join. Yes, yeah, I think that's so important. Well, Cindy, thank you so much for your time. This has been really, really great. I'm so glad to have heard some of these stories that I didn't know about. And it's a delight, and I hope we get a chance to work together again someday. I know, I, I know. know. And and I am going to, uh, you know, turnabout is fair play. So I'm going to call you and interview you because... I realize, you know, I so admire what you do oh, thank you. Um, and how you do it. You know, you're, you're a real diplomat in the best sense of that word. Mm. And I always really value having you on a project mm. because uh, you, you, you really help me navigate the waters. So, yeah. you know, oh, thank you. you're always at the top of my list. And yeah. right before we started, um, I got a text from BC Smith who says, hi. Oh, nice. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Well, say hi to BC for me. I will. Okay. okay. Cindy, thank you so very much. All right. We'll talk soon. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Well, there you go. Pretty darn good, yeah? Cindy Mallo, she rocks it. And I'm so glad that we were able to talk about the stuff that, well, a lot of times you just don't want to talk about. But let's keep the conversation going. Let's keep it active. Let's talk about all inequalities, not just sexism. And again, Sarah Elizabeth Timmons, www.lifeoutloudfilms.com slash join us. Next week on Pivot Point, we're going to have John Taylor, re-recording engineer, you know what they do. They mix all the sound, the dialogue, the effects, the music. JT's focus is music and dialogue, and he is one of the best. You don't want to miss his stories. All right, people, until next week, remember, if she's doing it, why not you? <laughs> <laughs>